will look like. This is where we left off last week, and we're unable to, to finish this point. The best way for me to describe the new earth, the best way for me to describe what the future heaven will look like is to let you know, think about the current earth. Think about where we live today. Think about the best parts of earth today are just a rough draft of what the future heaven, of what the new earth is going to look like. You know, imagine the wonders of the world, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, all the different beautiful places, the Swiss Alps, and think they are just a taste. They are just a a foreshadow. It's just a rough draft of what the new earth is going to be like. The beauty, the splendor, the majesty, just the amazing uh, view of the new earth. It's going to be incredible. And God specifically used the word earth. Why? Because we relate to it. We're familiar with it. He didn't say non-earth. He said new earth because we know what earth is and we can only imagine what a new version would be. It's like getting a new friend. I mean, if you get a new friend, you understand the word friend. You understand the concept from old friends. So getting a new friend just means you're getting a, 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 it's still a friend. It's just a new friend or a new car. A new car is the same as an old car, just new. That's what God's talking about throughout Scripture when it uses new earth. It's going to be a new earth. So let me explain something quickly. How many of you ever thought when, when we talk about heaven, we talk about how God's going to have the new earth back to a Garden of Eden-like state? It's going to go back to God's original plan, the way it was in the Garden of Eden without sin. How many of you ever, when you heard that, began to assume that God's taking us back to the Stone Age? That all of a sudden when we die and we get to the new earth, the new heaven, the future home of where we're going to spend eternity, that it's going to be a land and a world and an environment without technology. That we're going back to a primitive time, it's stone age, we're going to be running around in fig leaves and living in gardens. And How many have ever had the assumption about heaven that there's not going to be any technology in heaven? Because technology is evil, technology is bad, and there can't be technology in heaven. Be honest with me, how many of you ever thought that there's no way there can be technology in heaven? Well, that doesn't make sense biblically. Because God talks about the new Jerusalem coming to earth. We know what the new Jerusalem is. It's a city. The Bible says it's a city. Well, in cities, there has to be technology to build cities. I mean, understand, without architecture, without engineering, without technology, you cannot have a city. So it's not that God's going to take us back to the caveman days where we're going to be running around in fig leaves and, 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 and just eating fruit off of trees. I, I believe we will be eating fruit off of trees, but that may not be the only food we're eating. I believe there's going to be chefs and there's going to be kitchens and there's going to be cities and there's going to be countries and there's going to be nations and cultures and diversity and and different nationalities because the Bible talks about all those things when it describes heaven. This is the way I want you to logically think about it. You know, imagine a baby being born blind. You know, imagine a child being born blind and then the child grows up and the child now is 20 years old but spent 20 years of his life blind. And then God decides to supernaturally heal that young man at 20 years old who was born blind. Now, when God heals that person that was born blind, did they go back to when they were born or did they remain 20 years old? That's the way I want you to think about the new earth. It's not that when God heals the earth and restores the earth and renews the earth, God's going to take us back to a caveman time period of of, of primitive living. I believe there's going to be actually greater technology in heaven. Why? Because we're going to have a renewed mind. We're going to have a greater intellect. We're going to have, you know, renewed bodies and a renewed mind. Does that mean we're going to be flying around in spaceships? I have no idea. 
It's quite possible. I mean, you think about where technology is at today, and you think about what technology could be if we had a renewed mind, and there wasn't the curse of sin, and there wasn't a fallen state of the world. There's, there's no telling what technology will be like. But technology was a part of Scripture. In Genesis 4, God makes it a point to talk about technology in Genesis chapter 4. So if God makes it a point to talk about technology in the Bible and doesn't say that it's an evil thing, the reality is there's, there's nothing inherently evil with technology. Now, can man use technology for evil? Yes. Does that mean all technology is evil? No. Technology is just used by the user. So if you use it for good, technology is good. If you use it for bad, technology is bad. But technology, you know, I have no idea if our iPhones are going to be in heaven. I hope they are because I love my, I, I, honestly, I can't imagine living without my iPhone. I mean, I, I don't know what I did before I got the iPhone. I, me, I remember when I jumped from not having a cell phone to having a cell phone. You remember that big jump in life and how great it was to have a cell phone and you could actually call people. And then when you jump from cell phone to iPhone, it just changed my life even more. So will we have an iPhone in heaven? Well, the Bible doesn't definitively say, but I'm believing for it. That's just my guess. That's just my assumption. I don't have scripture and verse to back it up, but I do believe technology will be a part of heaven. What technology will look like, I don't know, but I do really believe there will be technology in heaven. Not only will there be technology on the new earth, but the new earth is full of cities and nations the Bible talks about. The Bible says people from nations will come to the new Jerusalem and give glory and give honor and give gifts to God. Well, if they're coming to the new Jerusalem, that means they must be coming from somewhere. So obviously, this planet, the new earth that we're going to live on with God forever when God renews all things and restores all things is going to be a planet with nations. It's going to have uh, societies. It's going to have cities. You know, uh, if, you're, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan or Chronicles of Narnia fan, one of the coolest things in the third book was after everything was said and done, they came back to London. You remember the kids came back to London and they saw London, but it was a London without the curse of sin. It was the same London. They were recognizing homes in different places, but it was a London that was different at the same time. Though it was the same, it was different. It was brighter. It was more colorful. There wasn't sin. There wasn't anything bad. There wasn't anything wrong. I really believe there's going to be a new North County. I can't back it up scripturally, but I think there is. I think there's going to be a new Honolulu, and that's where I plan on taking up my residence in heaven for all of eternity. And the new, now I'll visit the new Jerusalem. Uh, I'll come and go, but I think I I. I, I I'm going to ask God if I can live in the new Honolulu for all eternity, or even just give me an island somewhere. It'll be fine with me. Just an island somewhere, a new island, whatever, it doesn't matter. But who's to say it can't happen? You know, if you use your imagination, if you use your imagination based on what the Bible says, I'm not talking about doing anything with your imagination that contradicts the Word of God. Everything we imagine should line up with the Word of God or complement the Word of God. But the Bible clearly says that the new earth will have cities. It'll have nations. It'll have societies. It'll it'll be a world. So who's to say there won't be a new London or a new Los Angeles or a new San Diego or, or a new Hawaii or a new New York? Who's to say there's not? You know, if you even study about it, what, what's this new earth going to look like? Look at Revelations 22. Revelations 22. We're going to read the first three verses. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life clear as crystal. That's going to be a beautiful river. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. Two things that tells me. One, we're going to be eating in heaven. Hallelujah. 
How many of you excited about eating in heaven? Eating without gaining weight, eating without calories, eating with our resurrected body. It's going to be a beautiful experience eating in heaven. The second thing it tells me is how many of you ever assumed heaven was going to be without time? You know, we talk about heaven being an eternity, heaven being forever. There's a lot of people, I've even heard theologians and pastors from time to time say, I can't wait till we get to a day and age where there is no more time. Well, where do they get that view? Because it's not biblical. Right here, it says there's going to be a fresh crop every month. What does that tell me about heaven? It tells me there will be time in heaven. Now, time will never end. It'll be a never-ending time, but there will be ways to measure time because month is a measurement of time. There's going to be music in heaven the Bible talks about. You can't have music without time. How many know music doesn't make sense without time? There's got to be a start. There's got to be a finish. There's got to be verses. There's got to be choruses. There's got to be stanzas. So obviously there will be time in heaven. The problem with trying to imagine heaven without time is it becomes foreign and scares us. I mean, trying to think about, you know, a universe without time, it's kind of freaky. It, it, it kind of, you know, it bothers some people, but there will be, it'll be a never-ending time. It'll be time where every minute becomes more enjoyable than the last minute. Now, will minutes be exactly 60 seconds like they are in this earth? I don't know. Will months be exactly as long as they are on this earth? I don't know. But there will be measurements of time according to Scripture. It says the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. One of the things people ask about heaven all the time, well, if, if we're not going to have a memory wipe in heaven, if God's not going to wipe out our memory and start over and reprogram our minds, so if we're going to have, you know, our memories from earth in heaven, then how can it be heaven if you remember the bad things that happen on earth? Because unfortunately, there's some of us here that have some pretty terrible things that have happened on earth, that have witnessed some pretty terrible things, that have seen pretty terrible things. Well, what I believe God's going to do is when he uses these leaves to heal the nation from the fruit and from the trees, I believe part of the healing is he will heal the pain of what you experience on earth. He will heal the sorrow of the things you'll be through. He may not necessarily wipe out your memory. He may not give you a clean slate where you're no longer yourself. But what he will do is disassociate the pain to that memory. He will heal you of that pain. He'll heal you of the sorrow. He'll take away the, the bad feelings, the bad memory. Not necessarily take away the memory, but take away the pain and the emotion that was attached to the memory because the Bible says he's going to wipe away every tear. There's going to be no more sorrow in heaven. Why? Because he's going to heal the nations. There's going to be no war. There's going to be no sorrow. There's going to be no crime. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no pain. There's going to be no anguish. There's going to be no regret. Sounds like a pretty incredible place. You know, imagine just living life without regret. I know every one of us have done something we regret, and the pain of regret, how it weighs on you. Imagine being in an experience where there's no regret because you are completely healed of that emotion, where anything, none of those emotions take hold on you. Not necessarily your memory will be wiped, but the emotion attached to the memory will be gone. It's a beautiful thing. Ezekiel 47 verse 12 talks about heaven. And kind of reaffirms what it says in Revelations 22. It says, fruit trees of all kind will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall. And there will always be fruit on their branches. I mean, one of the worst things in life is peeling open a banana and seeing that big brown bruise on your banana. I mean, there's nothing worse than wanting to bite into that tasty banana and you peel it open. And the outside looks great. And you get that banana open. There's this Big brown bruise on the end. How many? Are you, I'm going to enjoy heaven for the fact that we don't have bruised fruit. I mean, there's nothing worse than going to the grocery store and having to go through ten apples before you find one you'll actually eat out of the barrel. I mean, am I the only one that's like that? Am I the only one that, that has? You know, 
I love that, that, that leaves are never going to turn brown. The fruit's not going to spoil. It's always going to be fresh. It's always going to be blooming. There's always going to be something tasty to eat. And then it says there will be a new crop every month. There it goes with that time again. So they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves will be for healing. There it is again. Then when you start studying Revelations 20 and 21 and 22, it talks about the new Jerusalem, the city that God created. When Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you, that new Jerusalem, that one day will come with Christ. And the Bible says the new Jerusalem will will, will merge with the earth. The heavens and the earth will merge together and it will become new heavens and a new earth. Let's talk about this city because the Bible describes it pretty accurately. I mean, the Bible uses very literal terms to describe the new Jerusalem. It says for one, It says this city, this is one city, think about this, one city, it is 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles tall. Now, I want you to imagine a city like that. That's basically from the border of Canada to the border of Mexico, from the border of the Appalachian Mountains out near West Virginia to the border of California, one city. And not only is it that wide and that long, but it's that tall. That's a huge city. Now, if you just estimate 12 feet per floor, which is the average sky-rise building, this city can accommodate over 600,000 floors or levels. 600,000. That can accommodate billions of people with every person getting probably a couple square miles just to themselves. How many know this is going to be a big city? city with plenty of rooms. Now, are we all going to live there? I don't believe every one of us will live in Jerusalem. I believe some of us will. I believe, you know, the highest honor are going to be those that get to live near the temple of God. The Bible says that's the honor of all, to be able to serve at his temple, to be able to be in his presence that close, to touch him, to, to see his face. That's going to be the greatest honor, but I don't believe all of us will live in the new Jerusalem because the Bible says there's going to be nations. There's going to be people all over. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Another question people ask all the time about heaven is in heaven, do we have free will or does God superimpose his will on us and make us robots? Because how many of you heard heaven is going to be without sin? You are not going to sin in heaven. Well, how is that possible? Is God going to superimpose his will on you? Are you going to be a robot? Do you have the capability of sinning? Do you have free will in heaven? A lot of people think about that. Well, this is what I believe. I believe that you will have free will in heaven. I believe without, without a doubt, or I can't say without a doubt, but I believe pretty strong based on Scripture that you will have the ability to sin in heaven if you want to because you will have free will. The difference is because you have the ability to, I don't believe you'll have the desire to. I believe God gives you a new nature in heaven, a righteous nature in heaven, and that nature supersedes any desire for sin in your life. It's not that you can't sin, it's that you won't sin because it's not your nature. For example, as much as I have free will on earth, how many of you will agree with me, as much as I have free will, as much as I want to be a rock, or I want to be a tree, or I want to be a surfboard, or I want to be a a microphone stand, My free will is not going to get me there. Why? Because my free will is not going to change my DNA, my physical makeup, my nature to make me a tree. It's not possible. That's what I believe in heaven. I believe you'll have free will in heaven, but because you will have a righteous nature, you will not want to sin. And taken even further, you're not going to want to want to sin because it is a new nature. Let's talk about what does it mean to rule the new earth with Christ? Because over and over it talks about 
We're going to rule the earth. We're going to rule the planet. We're going to rule the new earth with Christ. What does that actually mean? It's like a family business is what he's talking about. If if you understand the original plan of the Garden of Eden, God basically made Adam and Eve the king and queen of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because he gave them dominion over the garden. He gave them rule over the garden. What does that mean? It means they were the king and queen of the Garden of Eden. God established them that way. Well, the Bible says Jesus was the second Adam which means Jesus is the second king or the new king or the king. And the body of Christ is his bride, which means the body of Christ, those of us that are believers, are the queen. God, Jesus is the king, we're the queen, he's the husband, we're the bride. That's what it talks about. So in the new earth, we're going to fulfill God's original plan of the garden. Even we will rule with Christ because it's part of the family. You know, like, you know, William, who just married Kate over in England, when his grandmother dies, it's likely he'll become the king. But it's now he still has authority in the royal family because he has a position in the royal family. And it'll be the same for us, that Christ will be the king. That's why in Revelations 19, verse 16, it says, On his robe, at his thigh, was written the title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Now let me ask you, how can you be a king of kings if you're the only king? How can you be a Lord of lords if you're the only lord? If there's no little L lords and no little K kings, how are you the king of kings and lord of lords? What I believe is we will be the little K kings. We will be the little K lords. That's what the Bible talks about in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. And it says, if we endure hardship, we will reign with him. God is going to give you authority in heaven. God is going to give you rulership in heaven. God will give you dominion in heaven. God is going to give you responsibility and assignments and areas of control. And I don't understand why it's so foreign for so many people to understand this. It's difficult to understand. How many times in the Bible does it talk about rewards as crowns, that crowns are rewards? Well, what are crowns symbolic of? Crowns are symbolic of ruling. Crowns are symbolic of having a kingdom, having authority. That's what crowns are. And how often does the Bible use these crowns as rewards? Luke 19, verse 17, Jesus tells a parable. He says, well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So now you will be governor of the 10 cities as your reward. Now, listen, I understand that this is a parable, but... I also believe there are aspects of the parables that can be literal of the new earth, of the new kingdom. Because many times when Jesus started these parables, he said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. He said, some will have rule over 10 cities, some will have rule over five cities, some will have rule over one city. Paul talks about this in Corinthians when he gives us a lesson in theology 101 in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Paul says, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? Then in verse 3, Paul says, don't you realize that we will judge angels? How many of you understand? In the new earth, in the future heaven, God is going to give us levels of authority. God is going to give us levels of responsibility. God is, you know, that's why the Bible says the first will be last, the last will be first, the greatest will serve, and the servants will be the greatest. It's going to be a huge role reversal, I think, when we get to heaven. I think a lot of the people that you think are leading now probably going to be mopping floors in heaven, and some of the people mopping the floors and janitors and picking out trash probably going to be governors of 10 cities, governors of five cities. Why? Because they were faithful with a little. And because they were faithful with a little, I believe God's going to trust them with a much. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago in the judgment of works. 
So the reality is you have to understand as a believer, you are saved by grace. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You will never be good enough. You can't work hard enough. You'll never get to heaven based on your works. But once you're born again, once you accept the free gift of God, once you accept salvation by his grace through faith, God puts you on the race course of life. And based on how you live out your salvation, based on how you live out the free gift God gives you, will determine your level of authority and your level of rewards in heaven. That's why Paul says, run for eternal prizes. And if you know Paul, Paul was a grace preacher. Paul would never tell you to run for something that was free. Paul over and over and over said, salvation is free. Grace is free. You don't work for it. Jesus Christ gave you righteousness when he died on the cross. He gave you holiness when he died on the cross. He paid your price for you. So what is Paul talking about when he says, run for eternal prizes? Well, you're running for rewards in heaven. See, what I, you know, I can't wait till I have my crowns in heaven. I hope I get a crown in heaven. I hope I'm serving enough and, and, and being humble enough and giving enough and taking that low road enough where I get a crown or two because I can't wait to throw them at the feet of Jesus. You know what one of the worst things in heaven will be is standing before Jesus open, empty-handed because the Bible says we're going to throw our crowns at his feet. I don't want to stand before Jesus empty-handed because I didn't do anything on this life. I don't want to stand before Jesus not earning any crowns because after I got saved, I thought that's enough. All I need to do is get saved and that's it. I don't have to live for God. I don't have to serve God. I don't have to be faithful. I don't have to run my life well. I don't have to give. I don't have to work. Just getting my name in the book of life. No, I don't want to be empty-handed. I want to run for prizes. I want to run for rewards. Not so that I can have dominion in heaven. Not so that I can have authority over people in heaven. But so that I have something to throw down at the feet of Jesus. I want to be able to throw it down and say, Jesus, it was all for you. Now, yes, we're going to be given positions in heaven, responsibility in heaven. You know, the new earth, this, this future heaven is not going to be a democracy. It's not going to be a majority rule. There will be a king, and there will be little K kings under him. There will be systematic authority in heaven. There will be, contrary to popular belief, a social hierarchy in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me, because sometimes when we use the word hierarchy, people get very nervous. There's a social hierarchy. That means there's somebody that's giving authority. There's somebody that's given this level of authority. But there is absolutely, now listen to me, absolutely no relational hierarchy. Everybody will be equal in heaven. Now, you will be given different responsibilities. You will be given different authorities. You will be given different dominions. But there will be no relational hierarchy. You can walk up to any person anytime. You can go talk to Father Abraham. You can go hang out with Apostle Paul. You can go hang out with John the Beloved. There is no relational hierarchy in heaven. But there will be a social hierarchy the Bible talks about. But the other flip side of it is there's not going to be any pride. There's not going to be any jealousy. There's not going to be any envy. There's not going to be any boasting. There's not going to be any lording. There's going to be no cruel leadership. No matter who is placed in authority over you in heaven, they are not going to be cruel. It's going to be a loving rule. It's going to be a compassionate rule. They're going to be modeling their rule from the nature of Christ because ultimately he is the king in heaven, and we are simply fulfilling his responsibility as stewards there. So it's not that you get to do what you want with your rule. You get to do what he wants with your rule, and he is a loving, benevolent leader. That's going to be the beautiful thing. That's going to be so amazing about heaven. 
Some of us are going to rule over animals, some over gardens, some over cities, some over parks. I was talking to Chris in the earlier service, Tim's wife, who works at SeaWorld. I think she's going to get a rule over all the Shamus in heaven. She's going to get a hangout with her because of her faithfulness on earth with Shamu. I think God's going to let her play with Shamu the rest of her life in heaven, and I know she'll love it. She's going to be snorkeling and scuba diving and exploring all the sea creatures of the ocean because that's her passion, and I believe she's going to fulfill it even more when she gets to heaven. Let me get into the last point quickly. The greatest glory of heaven. This is the most exciting part about heaven. This is the greatest glory of heaven because every, every pleasure in heaven will derive from and simply be secondary to one thing, his presence. You see, God's greatest gift to us is and always will be himself. That is God's greatest gift to us, is himself. Revelations 21.3 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. God himself. God's not going to send an ambassador. God's not going to send an angel. It's not even just his son, flesh and blood, Jesus Christ. God himself will be with us. That's the greatest glory of heaven. That's the greatest prize, to be able to be in his presence. I mean, think about it. Going to heaven without God would kind of like be going on a honeymoon without your bride. You know, imagine getting married and then leaving your bride and going on your honeymoon by yourself. That's what heaven without God would be like. See, our greatest joy is not just having God with us, not just his presence, but let's take it a step further. The greatest joy in heaven is to look at him. In heaven, we will be able to look upon the face of God. We will be able to see his face, see his love, see his emotion, see his compassion. Imagine what it's going to be like to see him. Revelations 22, 4 says, and they will see his face. Why does the Bible make us such a big deal about that? Why is it such a big deal to see him? Well, if you understand Old Testament history, back in the Old Testament days, God inhabited the Holy of Holies in the temple, but it wasn't even the fullness of God. It was just a glimpse of God's glory. And the only person that could even go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. And the high priest was only allowed to go in there once a year. And in fact, they would have to tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest just in case he was struck dead in the Holy of Holies. They'd have a way to pull him out. How many of you would want that job back then? Exodus 33, verse 18 and 19, Moses responded, Then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. And then it goes on to say, but you cannot see my face. See, the ancient theologians, they talked about uh, what they call the beatific vision, which is a term that was derived from three Latin words that means happy making sight. Happy making sight sight. That's what it's going to be like to look at God, to look at his face. It is a happy making sight. Well, how do we get to see God? Well, Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, working at living in peace with everything and working and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Those who aren't holy will not see the Lord. Now, let me explain something. You are holy because of what Jesus did on the cross. You are holy because of the grace of God. So once you accept that grace, once you accept the salvation, you are made holy to be able to see the face of God. But have you ever wondered why this is sometimes the hardest a joy to understand? I mean, sometimes even as a pastor, I sit back and I think, you know, 
I'm looking forward to heaven. It sounds really exciting, but I just don't really get how big of a deal it is to see the face of God. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to our human mind. But the reality is to see God's face is the loftiest of all aspirations. But sadly, for most of us, it's not at the top of our wish list for heaven. See, if we truly understood what it meant to see God, it would be the number one priority of our life when we get to heaven. See, there's some people listening right now, and they hear me describe all these wonders of heaven. They hear me describe the mountains and the oceans and the sports and the cultures and the entertainment and all the different technology of heaven. And they say, well, you need to have your eyes on the giver, not the gift. You need to be focusing on God and not on heaven. And I agree with you. We should never forget the giver, but this approach denies what God has graciously graciously given us. See, it sees the material realm and other people in your life as God's competitors rather than instruments that communicate his love and character. I want you to get this this morning. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the pleasures of the gift as long as we do not forget the giver. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the pleasures of life, enjoying the pleasures of your family, the pleasures of food, the pleasures of your car, the pleasures of a boat, the pleasures of a surfboard, the pleasures of a golf club. There is no problem enjoying any of that as long as you don't forget the giver. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. God is a lavish giver. God wants to give us gifts. God provides everything for our enjoyment, so you shouldn't have to feel guilty when you're enjoying it. 1 Timothy 4 verse 4 is the key. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. Don't reject anything God created. Don't reject anything that God gives. Just receive it with thanks. Receive your family with thankfulness. Receive food with thankfulness. Receive your home with thankfulness. See, yes, it is true that because of our current sin nature, because of the state of the world today, we got to be careful that we don't make idols out of God's gifts because it's very easy to make an idol out of God's gift. And the joy of heaven is going to be where we can enjoy all the gifts of God without ever putting any of them above him. But if we don't enjoy God's gifts, we upset them. I mean, it's my son's birthday today. He's three years old. Somebody actually congratulated us today for being able to keep him alive for three years, which is quite a feat if you know our son, because he is an adventurous little dude. But my wife and I, we got him presents. Nothing would break our heart worse than to have him open his presents and walk away and not enjoy him. We got him gifts because we want him to enjoy those gifts. We want him to ride his new bike. We want him to play with his new basketball goal. We want him to hit his new t-ball. We want him to do all of that. If he doesn't enjoy it, it would break our heart. It's the same thing with the father. If you're not enjoying the gifts God gave you, you break his heart. He gives you gifts to enjoy it. The problem is you can get so wrapped up in the gift you ignore him. But that's what's going to be impossible about heaven. See, God doesn't want to be replaced. He simply wants to be recognized as the source. And we know that a preoccupation with a God-given gift can turn into idolatry, but enjoying that very same gift with a grateful heart can actually draw you closer to God. I bet you didn't know that golf can get you closer to God. I bet you didn't know that surfing can make you closer to God. I bet you didn't know that spending time with your wife can get you closer to God. I bet you didn't know that in playing with your children can get you closer to God. As long as you do it with a grateful heart, recognizing the source, those things that you enjoy in life that God graciously gives can actually bring you closer to him. 
See, ironically, there are some people who are so religious in their ways that they, they are so scared that they're going to put anything before God that they miss a thousand daily opportunities to say thank you to God. They miss opportunities all day long to praise him, to thank him, and to draw near to him through the beautiful gifts that he gives us. So you don't have to feel guilty when God blesses you. You should enjoy it when God blesses you because he's the giver. Simply thank him. You know, look, at, look how excited people got a couple weeks ago at the royal wedding. The, 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 Thousands of people lined the streets of London. Thousands of people packed into the courtyard of the palace. They said over a billion people watched the wedding on television. Imagine all the people wanting to be connected to that royal family. How wonderful it'll be for us when we get to heaven and we get to see God face to face. When we're connected with royalty, when we get to walk in the temple, we don't just have to watch it on TV, but we get to see God with our face. Father Boudreaux in 1871 wrote a book called The Happiness of Heaven. And in this book, he tells a story of a kind-hearted, loving king. And this king was a good man. This king loved people. And one day this king was on a hunting trip and he found a four-year-old boy destitute, abandoned, orphan. The boy was blind. He was hungry. He was living in absolute poverty, no one to care for him. And the king's heart broke for this young man and he adopted this boy. He loved this boy. The boy was blind, but he brought him back to the palace. He brought him into the royal family. He made this boy a prince. He adopted him as a son. This boy grew up in the royal palace. He had food to eat. He had clothes to wear. (coughs) On this boy's 20th birthday, the king, the loving king, brought in a surgeon to operate on the young man. And miraculously, his eyes were healed, and he was able to see. Now, can you imagine what it'd be like to be blind your whole life and to be able to see? What do you think was the first thing this boy wanted to see? He wanted to see this loving king, this father that had rescued him. This father that had rescued him out of poverty. This father that had rescued him out of being an orphan. See, it wasn't enough to live in the palace when you can't see. See, it's not going to be enough to live in heaven without seeing the face of God. See, the seeing the face of God is going to be the greatest glory of living in heaven, being able to stand before him, being able to look upon his face. We can't imagine it now, but it's going to be amazing. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? You know, one of the things that I don't think I've ever been moved more powerfully by a series I've ever preached than this series, it's challenged me to really evaluate my Christian life, You know, the whole message of the judgment of works, that was very convicting for me. You know, stuff that I really don't think about. You know, we preach grace a lot, and grace is how you get your name written in the book of life. And I'll preach it till I die. It is by faith. You can't work for salvation. You can't earn the gift of Jesus Christ. You receive it by grace. You receive it through faith. But the reality is, once you're born again, the Bible says God puts you on a race course of life. And depending on how you run your life as a Christian, will depend on your rewards, your authority, the crowns you receive in heaven. Why should we want to receive crowns? Not so that we have authority over people. I don't want crowns for my own glory. I don't want crowns for my own pride. I don't want crowns so that I have authority over people. I want crowns so that when I stand before Jesus, I don't stand empty-handed. I want crowns so that I have something to lay down at the feet of Christ to be able to say I did it all for you. It wasn't for myself. It wasn't for my glory. It wasn't for my power. It wasn't for my authority. I did this for you. I ran this race for you. 
I won these eternal prizes through my life, through serving, through loving, through forgiving, through giving for you. And now I lay them down at your feet because I don't want to stand before God empty-handed. Can you imagine standing before God empty-handed? Can you imagine standing there without anything? You, you got your name written in the book of life. You accepted Jesus, but that was the extent of it. You never went beyond. So I challenge you with that this morning. And then before I close, I want to ask anyone in the room that needs to take the first gift, which is free, salvation, the grace of God. If you want your eternity secure in heaven, because what you have to understand is heaven is not your default location. When you die, you don't go to heaven by default. You go to heaven by choice, your choice. You have to make a decision. God will not kidnap you and force you to live in heaven. God will give you the choice to either say yes to Jesus Christ. People say, why would a loving God send someone to hell? Well, let me ask you, why would a loving God kidnap you and force you to live in heaven against your will? You have to make the choice. You have to say yes to Jesus. God will not force himself on you. He's given you a free gift, but you have to decide whether you receive it. You have to decide whether you're going to take that gift. So with every eye closed, as we close this service quickly, with every eye closed, I just want to ask you, if you want to receive that free gift this morning, you want to say yes to Jesus, you want to know today that your name is written in the book of life, that you will have an eternity in heaven, secure, this new worth that we talk about the beauty, the glory, the incredible, all of it all, the mountains, the oceans, the cities, the presence of God. If you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's where you will spend your eternity, step one is to say yes to Jesus by faith. Receive him through grace. Every eye closed. If that's you this morning, would you raise your hand and say, pray for me. Thank you. Thank you. Pray for me. Thank you. Who else? Thank you. Who else needs to raise your hand? Thank you. Who else needs to say, I need to receive that gift today? Thank you. Thank you. Who else? Put your hands down for me. I'd like everyone in the church to repeat this prayer after me to encourage those that raised their hand for the first time. The Bible says, when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. That's how you receive the gift. You don't work for it, you don't earn it. It's not about good works. When you raised your hand, you signified to me that you believe in your heart. Now I want to lead you in a prayer of confession with your mouth. And if you pray this prayer out loud and you believe it, doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what your emotions say. The Bible says the angels open up the book of life and they write your name in the book of life. And the day you stand before God, you have a reservation secure for all of eternity. Say it with me, church, loud and strong. Dear God, I need you. I receive the gift of Jesus as my Savior. You are Lord. You are the Son of God. You died. You were risen from the dead to give me this opportunity. So I believe in the name of Jesus that I will now spend eternity with you.